0: I'd like to introduce our third speaker this morning. Valerie Steele is director and chief curator of the Museum of the Fashion Institute of Technology, FIT, in New York City. She has curated more than 20 exhibitions in the past 10 years, including Love and War, The Weaponized Woman, The Corset, Fashioning the Body, London Fashion, which won the first Richard Martin Award for the Best Costume Exhibition from the Costume Society of America, Femme Fatale, Fashion in Fantasy de Paris, China Chic, East Meets West, and Form Follows Fashion. She's editor-in-chief of Fashion Theory, the Journal of Dress, Body, and Culture, which she launched in 1997. Dr. Steele is also the author of numerous books, including The Black Dress, Ralph Rucci, The Corset, A Cultural History, Paris Fashion, Fifty Years of Fashion, New Look to Now, which was Yale University Press, 1997, and Paris, Adam Biro, 98. Fetish, Fashion, Sex, and Power, Oxford University Press, 1996. And Women of Fashion, 20th Century Designers, uh, 1991, Rizzoli. She was editor-in-chief of the three-volume Encyclopedia of Clothing and Fashion, which was 2005. And her latest book and publication are both titled Gothic, Dark Glamour. And this is Yale Press in conjunction with FIT. You can look at her blog and biography at valeriesteelfashion.com, and open up a Sunday Times fashion supplement and you're likely to find a quotation from Dr. Steele. She lectures frequently and has appeared on the Oprah Winfrey show, the PBS special The Way We Wear, and many other television programs. Her talk today is illiterately entitled Femme Fatale, Fashion in Fin de siècle, France. Please welcome Valerie Steele.
1: Well, Paris, of course, is famous as the source of modern art and modern life, the capital of the 19th century, and was also the capital of modern fashion. Um, As a curator, I've been interested for a long time in trying to do an exhibition about late 19th century French fashion. Of course, the original such exhibition was La Belle Epoque, produced by Mrs. Diana Vreeland at the Metropolitan Museum's Costume Institute many years ago. And as you can see from the images here, some very, very beautiful dresses were in this exhibition. Notice particularly the one with the black sort of fin de siècle um, art nouveau stripes on it. This was a, a beautiful exhibition, but Mrs. Freeland had a very nostalgic and, shall we say, ahistoricist approach to fashion. It was supposed to be, you know, the most glamorous moment when everyone had the best of everything. You walked into the gallery and the music was playing ta ra ra And so I felt it left a certain um, something to be explored because actually it seemed to me that the reality of fantasy de fashion was more interesting than her sort of hyper-fashionized approach to it. So a few years ago, I did an exhibition, Femme Fatale, about fashion and visual culture in fin de siècle Paris. Uh, and my goal was to look at it, um, not from the point of view of sort of fashion journalism or old style costume history, but rather to try and put it in the context of all kinds of recent research on women, on decadence, on literature and art from that period and show how fashion could also tell an interesting story about attitudes and changing society. Uh, I also uh, referred frequently in the exhibition to the work of Octave Uzan, uh, who Will of course has also studied, and we'll talk about him a little bit later. And even though this is a nude here, as we'll see, Octave uh, did a great deal of research and writing on women's fashion and in particular on how fashion uh, tied into the image of the modern woman and the femme fatale. I was also inspired, of course, by Deborah Silverman's book and by Emily Apter's book, both of which uh, looked at art, literature, and objects, design objects as well, and put them into the political and social context of the time. Uh, Here's an image from Uzan's history of fashion in Paris in the 19th century. And what he'd like to do was to commission special drawings which would show modern fashion within the context of modern life. And here he has visitors to a salon. And in the background, of course, you can see Olympia. Uh, Another one of his illustrations, this one I believe from La Femme à Paris, which shows modern courtesans uh, at a place of amusement and shows some of the scenes of modern life in which fashion was presented. So it seemed to me important to stress that fashion exists within certain fashionable arenas with knowledgeable spectators and performers and that the meaning of the fashion is something which is created within that context and is negotiated by all of the players. This is a lovely uh, image of One of uh, Octave Luzon's more obscure books uh, with the heavy femme fatale influence, the sort of the modern Eve with a Chris, interestingly, an Indonesian wavy dagger plunging through a rose. And as we'll see, his image and the image of a lot of other writers and painters at the time focused on the modern fashionable woman as a kind of new, dangerous Eve, a kind of, desirable but also very dangerous personage. This was the first dress that I put in the exhibition. It's a worth, of course, um, the most famous French couturier of the period but it was worn not by some Parisian courtesan but by an, a very respectable upper-class American or upper-middle-class a uh, New York lady, apart from the uh, Museum of the City of New York because I wanted to draw attention to the fact that Paris really was the capital of fashion and although uh, Americans frequently complained, this literature from the time they'll say, how can the daughters of Puritan ancestors wear clothes that were cr- inspired by, you know, the evil women in Paris. And <laughs> <laughs> in fact, what you see is that it's the very same dresses. And indeed, one of the most controversial aspects of fashion in the late 19th century was the fact that it blurred the lines between monde and demi-monde. That, as another French writer put it, you know, walking up the stairs at worth would be, you know, countess so-and-so, and walking down the stairs at the same time would be a famous courtesan and that they were literally sort of within the same realm and wearing the same clothes, except that the courtesan's clothes were likely to be slightly more expensive, more avant-garde. Here we see another image from Uzan of the fashionable parade of ladies. uh, From the context in the book, the implication is that these are courtesans, but of course this sort of promenade was also part of fashionable life. And it really did uh, cause a great deal of agita at the time that increasingly people claimed you couldn't tell the difference. You couldn't track who someone was by their clothes. Now, in the vestimentary old regime, you could pretty much tell fairly clearly who everybody was. But with the rise of modernism um, and mass production and sort of growing fluid class barriers, it became harder and harder to tell. Uh, This, of course, has continued and is even more complicated today by the rise of different subcultures. So when I worked on my fetish book, for example, I interviewed some leather fetishists, and I said, so, what do you think of Versace? And one guy said, we hate it. You can't tell the difference anymore whether someone is really into it or just making a fashion statement. (laughs) And already, more than a century ago, uh, it was increasingly hard to tell whether you were really a woman of sex for hire, or whether you were just imitating the look of such a woman. The fashion business was changing dramatically. It was moving from being a small-scale craft, primarily practiced by working-class women for individual clients, to being something which was big business and high art, so that One of the things that shocked people about Worth was not just that he was a man, although that was shocking too. Uh, In an article Dickens wrote, he talked about how, uh, telling his English readers that in Paris, real men with hairy fingers dressed and undressed the highest ladies in the land, and made them walk back and forth in front of them. And Worth, of course, presented himself as an artist, wore a big beret like Wagner and like Rembrandt, and would tell his clients, very often what he thought they should wear, very much in, in the sort of dictatorial mode. And he started to produce the clothes, although they were all hand-sewn, they were produced in terms of collections with set uh, details, which could be changed and sold to clients from Russia to South America. You could say, you know, I want these sleeves and this skirt and this particular fabric. So it was already becoming industrialized, in a sense, even though it was all handcrafted. At the same time, of course, you also have the rise of the department stores um, which create a sort of wonderland for women. Here we have a wonderful image of Cora Pearl, one of the famous courtesans of the age, a little bit earlier than some of our other courtesans, um, but someone who was highly fashionable, was drenched in jewelry. There's one account where they describe how she was so covered with diamonds on the stage, at one point she flung herself down in a chair on stage and put her feet up and you could see that the soles of her shoes were paved with diamonds. Uh, And it was said at the time that, you know, to keep, elite mistress was like keeping a racehorse or a yacht it was very very expensive because what you got out of that was not just possibly more adventurous sexual practices but you got the prestige from being seen as being sort of you know someone who was a real liver of the good life that you could afford to have such a prestigious and expensive public companion, as if you were to go to a party and have Angelina Jolie as your date. I mean, it was it testified to your masculine prowess that you could have such a person with you. Uh, so actresses and courtesans, and the lines between them were regarded as very blurred then, uh, were among the greatest fashion trendsetters, in part because they were um, freed from some of the strictures of... You sort of respectability and morality um, but partly also because there was a sense that they, and we'll talk more about this later, that they were a sign of prestige for their protector and that they used clothing as a way of attracting more protectors of a sort of greater and greater wealth. So clothing was part of what made the image of the fashionable sexual woman in Paris. This is a wonderful uh, shot from another of Uzan's books. Um, And you see the people gambling. I'm going to read you a quote now, which is from the uh, dictionary, the grand dictionary, of uh, the 19th century. It's the definition of courtesan. And it's linking the importance of fashion and luxury consumerism. Quote, the courtesan knows that she needs a mise-en-scene that will bring her close to the man who pays her. In other words, she is a gambler who constantly doubles her stake. She receives 1,000 francs per month uh, from one of her supporters. By spending these 1,000 francs on entertainment and clothing expenses, she rarely fails to catch the eye of a spendthrift who hastens to offer her 3 or 4,000, assuming that such a woman could not cost any less. Or as Charles Bernheimer put it in his book Figures of Ill Repute, the courtesan's performance was a matter of surface exhibition. She did not signify the sexual body so much as its production in elaborate spectacle. She was artfully constructed according to the codes defining modern desirability. Her appeal was thus largely a function of her ability to dissolve the beastly immediacy of the female animal in a play of intriguing signs and changing masks, all of them lavish and expensive. Not only the courtesan, but also the upper-class respectable woman was increasingly seen as a kind of spangled queen, a sort of glorious deluxe objet d'art, as ordinary fashion magazines hasten to assure women. And by surrounding herself with all of these artificial signs of femininity, uh, the fashionable woman created an image of herself that was in a sense half doll and half idol. Here you see another wonderful dress completely covered with this sort of glittering surface ornamentation. Um, In fact, of course, it's already a little bit fake because this These are not real pearls, this is not a dress worn by a Russian princess, this is just your ordinary sort of couture client. Um, But even though it's fake pearls, it's still deliciously covered, sparkling. It covers all of the sort of female secondary sexual characteristics, but you can see it's dissolving beastly immediacy into something which is quite glittering and artificial. Here you see the factories producing, mass producing all of the components of this dress. And indeed you can see that the very workers themselves are also wearing the crinolines, so holding out the skirt. So although although working-class women couldn't wear couture, and they couldn't wear the most expensive objects, they certainly did follow fashion. And uh, the silhouette was the fashionable silhouette, the corset, was in the fashionable shape, although it might not be the magnificent custom-made satin corset. In fact, when I did my show on corsets, I made a point of of borrowing at considerable expense a corset from Leicester in England, uh, which was sold under the brand name The Pretty Housemaid's Corset. It was mass-produced, it was billed as the cheapest and strongest corset made. It had exactly the same silhouette as a high fashion corset and I put it next to that so you could see it but it gave the working class woman the same silhouette Uh, however it had extra boning so that you could be down scrubbing the floor without breaking any of the bones in your corset which of course again uh, demolishes the old idea that it was only ladies of the leisure class who wore corsets, and that the corset proved a woman's inability to do any physical labor. It did nothing of the kind, although it did claim that get to give you the position of a lady and an aristocrat, but that was a claim that working-class women were also quite eager to assert. And corsets now became mass-produced, so you, you could get a couture corset or a custom-made corset fitted for you, but you could also buy a ready-made corset very cheaply and you, the advertisements would show you could buy them by size and contrary to what you might believe they were not anywhere near as small, the standard sizing um, sort of was ranged from 18 to 32 inches but 18 was not what it normally was because you could leave the laces open in the back as much as four inches and then you could buy them much larger than 32 inches. You just had to pay like 50 cents more for each sort of increment of how big you got it. Uh, I once took the famous corsetier and tight lacer, Mr. Pearl, to the Costume Institute to look at 19th century corsets with him and he was deeply disappointed to find that none of them were as small as his own 19 inch waist. (laughs) Here we just have some posters from uh, the the Femme Fatale exhibition to show how the consumerism, the shopping, and also the sort of the world of um, entertainment were both venues of uh, sort of fashionable display. The consumption and um, production were merged and blended so that you had this sort of spectacle of consumption, and you're tending to hide away the production of it, but elements of that were visible everywhere particularly since so much of what was produced was still only half uh, produced in a hidden form. It all had to be then fitted exactly to you. Here we have another Uzan image of a fashionable woman in front of a little cafe being approached by two gentlemen. And then uh, from uh, Georges Dufour, this wonderful sort of Art Nouveau-esque image of a woman very uh, sort of sinuous and curvaceous. Um, I'll come back to this a little bit later, but this whole idea of Art Nouveau curves was something which was definitely an important aspect, not only of famous Art Nouveau jewelry, but also of the fashionable silhouette itself. First of all, already by the 1870s, you had steam-molded corsets, so which created a longer and sleeker line. And then by 1900, you can see here, she's got already the famous sans ventre corset, the without a stomach corset, or the S-curve, which instead of squeezing you in here, would push your stomach in and cause the back to curve. Uh, It was supposed to be healthier, but in fact was considerably more uncomfortable. Here you see another um, little vignette from the exhibition, and you can see how the physical type, the ideal type at this point, was supposed to be quite well padded in my secret life the the famous British sexual autobiography um, he talks about how no man will stay long with a woman whose skinny buttocks can be held in the palm of one hand you you wanted flesh Um, but you also wanted someone who would have a a relatively small waist and I emphasize again relatively it's the uh, waist hip differential as anthropologists say which was the important part and it continues to be the important part because in high fashion models today from Twiggy to um, you know L McPherson and everybody in between all have a 0.7 waist hip ratio so although the sizes of the breast the amount of padding on the bottom changes the waist hip differentials remained essentially the same you notice also the bicycle uh, poster in the back and this is One thing that sometimes historians have suggested that uh, the fashions changed because of dress reform and sports. Well, sports to some extent, but dress reform turns out to have surprisingly little effect. Although fashions were changing dramatically in this period, the changes were emerging from within the world of fashion itself. Now, here's Uzan himself. Total, pretty much totally forgotten. I was so thrilled when I found out that Willow was working on him also because it had gotten to the point, I go to the Bibliotheque Nationale and people go, madam, mm, he's a very obscure subject. And I go, "Like, how can he be so obscure? He wrote a zillion books. But he was an esthete, a bibliophile, um, He was interesting to me from the time I was in graduate school precisely because he focused so much on fashion and femininity, on this whole idea of femininity, everything that involves sort of the world of women, i.e., beauty, love, fashion. and he claimed that you know fashion was woman's art woman's literature and he claimed that he himself was the faithful historian of women's fashion and claimed to have a great psychological expertise also as to what the modern woman wanted and how her psychology had changed he's best known of course though for his books on books he was editor of le livre and other specialized journals and did a number of deluxe books on different subjects whether Book binding or the history of great book collectors. Uh, he's probably, to the extent he's known at all, best known today as the author of a little essay called The End of Books, which predicted something like the audiobook replacing actual books with pages that we read. Uh, but he wrote other books like The Fan. Uh, The sunshade, the muff, and the glove which in pre-Freudian time already went on and on about the erotic symbolism of the muffs and stroking the fur and plunging your hand into this dark, warm nest, etc. Son altes La Femme, Her Highness Woman. And my favorite, La Femme à Paris, No Contemporaine, which shows the modern woman as, appropriately enough, a sphinx this sort of dangerous femme fatale. Um, and then he traces the, his view of the history of woman in Paris, but he focuses particularly on the modern woman in this. Here he has, uh, in one of his uh, prefaces, he shows an idealized image of himself surrounded by all these fashionable specters from the past, talking to him about you know, what fashion means to them, et cetera. And now, to the exhibition itself. Um, one of the, I tried to put in a number of different garments, and as I said, not look at it in terms of the history of high fashion, as in, you know, just Worth, du say, etc., but rather different kinds of clothes that were worn and what, um, what people thought about them at the time. So I spent a lot of time trying to craft labels which would give, in a brief sense, some feeling for text from the time. You have here a really beautiful tea gown in this sort of Nile green, and then it's uh, open in front uh, with uh, the lace down the front, and then lined on either side by fur, trimmed on either side by fur. It's very, very voluptuous, but it's very different from the corseted, fitted daytime clothing. This is the time when you could, in a sense, take off your corset or wear a much looser corset. You'd be entertaining at home. It could be a mixed crowd of men and women, but they'd all be of your social class. Um, this is the kind of dress that in literature in Proust, Odette, for example, is really known for her tea gowns, is forever lounging around. It seemed, was seen as a very seductive style of dress um, and also as something which was part of a new sort of exoticism and eroticism in women's private clothes. So let me read to you from Uzan again. Fashion, uh, let's see, fashion is women's art, their literature, their science, their history. It's women's religion for which they would sacrifice every comfort. They are actresses in love with the effect they produce, anxious to attract attention and to dominate their rivals by the eclat of luxury deployed or the refinement of elegance of the dernier cri of Parisian creation. And he stressed it in particular because of the growing uniformity of outer dress. Uh, not just because of mass manufacturing but because of the popularity of for example tailored suits there was an increasing enthusiasm for uh, intimate luxurious intimate attire the tea gown but also lingerie that um, lingerie was so personal so attractive it's sort of the mark of individual expression and we see that with intimate clothes as well like the tea gown Um, in the background you see a mass-produced petticoat, the kind sold in department stores, not the sort of elaborate, expensive one, but again, the sort of democratization, even of some of this luxurious lingerie, which he saw as being a way of setting oneself apart from the great mass, uniform mass of women on the street. Too often, people assume that every small change in fashion indicates you know, a, a significant social and cultural change. Fashion is all about change, and most of the changes in fashion have to do with the internal dynamics of the fashion system. Um, however, if you look at it cumulatively, I think it's certainly true that certain elements of fashion are indeed quite revealing of attitudes, for example, attitudes about the body, attitudes about women's place in society, etc. So, of course, I was trying in this exhibition to interrogate what these clothes said to their contemporaries and what, looking at them from our perspective, we might think they were saying. The layout of the exhibition tried very much to stay with this sort of art nouveau curves and with this sort of somewhat poisonous pale green and as you can see, with a variety of different kinds of clothing from different periods. Again, from Uzan, an uh, image of contemporary fashion. Uh, one point that Uzan makes, which I thought was extremely interesting, was that he was obsessed with 18th century literature and fashion. And this was something that he shared in common with a lot of people, the Goncourt, et cetera, in the late 19th century. This idea of 18th century as a period of aristocratic elegance, and particularly of the aristocratic woman and her fashions as being so important. And certainly in fashion, as you'll see, there were a number of references to 18th century fashion that keep re-emerging in the late 19th century. That's definitely one of the themes that comes up over and over as modern women are trying to create an image of themselves. Here we have the contemporary woman and hmm, where to go with this exactly? Um, go in so many different directions. I think One thing that comes across is that the image of the woman in the late 19th century positions her often within the interior, like this, as with the tea gown in many settings. But in point of fact, women were more more and more conspicuous uh, in public, in various kinds of public venues. Shopping, as I said, the world of shopping became a women's world, which had a certain kind of semi-interior quality. the rules of self-presentation for the different venues became increasingly important as a way of stressing that you knew who you were at any given point. So here we see one kind of interior dress and here you see from La Fama Paris a variety of external uh, street dress. And I wanted to bring across some of the specific differences um, to the sort of culturally constructed rules about what was appropriate to show when. Because as one writer put it, who among you would dare to appear in the streets and to walk under the eyes of the people in the costume for a ball? The most audacious would not take this liberty, for the jeers of the crowd would immediately force her to hide, and urchins would throw mud and stones at her moreover the police would intervene and probably take her to a safe place in order to deliver her then to the correctional tribunal as guilty of an outrage to public morality so now we'll see um, ball dress and street dress completely different rules all of these rules also were complicated by specific rules of accessories. So you always were wearing a hat outside. No longer the kind of concealing bonnet. These were coquettish little hats that did nothing to hide your hair. Uh, quite the contrary. They were calling attention and many of them were modeled uh, on men's hat styles of the past. In fact, if you take a long view, you see that in the Middle Ages, and the early modern period, hats were for men and women wore head veils. And only gradually women started to wear more and more hats and more and more decorative hats. And although you could still tell in the 19th century the top-hatted gentleman versus the soft-capped worker, uh, women took over the vast majority of decorative hats and appropriated them for themselves as a feminine style. I tried desperately to get uh, a hat that actually had stuffed kittens on it which I had read about in a 19th century paper but I couldn't find anything like that although I found lovebirds and other kinds of uh, trimmed hats. And here all of the various uh, fashionable shoes. Now um, 19th century people were no more uh, foot fetishists than they are now. Um, That foot and shoe were certainly the focus of attention. but you saw them. I mean, you saw plenty of feet and shoes. Um, it's just a question of under what circumstances and which feet and shoes, when. That would be the distinguishing mark between whether you were a young girl or a grown up lady or a working class woman or a ballet dancer or who you were supposed to see at any given time. But you certainly had decorative stockings with. Know, decorations up the, the uh, leg and it was no surprise to see that decoration in the air of the crinoline when the crinoline swung later on when the front of the dress was sort of molded to the torso and you could even see the lines of the thighs through the dress um, the body was not nearly as hidden as we might assume looking back on it we say oh it's hidden from neck to ankle but the people at the time were quite attuned to all of the sexual display in the dress Here's one of those evening dresses that you couldn't possibly wear this on the street without having stones thrown at you and being picked up by the police. Um, What you have is it's showing the top of your bosom, showing your naked arms. That's it. These things previously uh, had been not a shocker at all in the daytime, but gradually as you get uh, a more modernized class structure, you get much more of a sense that it's occasion specific eroticism. If you look at 19th century novels, Trollope has a novel where this rich working class woman um, has made money and so she goes to a daytime party that is held by the sort of lady of the manor. And the lady of the manor keeps trying to say, wouldn't you like a shawl? Aren't you cold? Because she's wearing a low cut dress and it's daytime. She shouldn't be doing that. But in the evening, you could have it totally plunging. In my Gothic exhibition, I had a morning dress from 1900, plunging decolletage, skin-tight, covered in sequins and bare arms. And whenever I'd give a tour, people would say, how can that be a morning dress? It's so sexy. And I would go, those are matte sequins. They're not shiny sequins. That's what makes it a morning dress. It was perfectly appropriate to have that low decolletage in the evening. Um, for daytime, however, you were covered up. This is a really beautiful uh, day suit by Madame Paquin, uh, and it's not as austere as the kind of tailored suits which were, in a way, pioneered in America and the US. They were less popular in France. Uh, people thought they looked a little bit too mannish, so the suits tended to be more decorative. Um, I know in my label for this, I put in uh, a translated quote that Uzon has in one of his books for the revolutionary march of the little dressmakers. Which goes, what does the dressmaker demand of the house of Worth or of Paquin? More money, less work, and in fact, you know, this—the uh, workforce was, pre- for in the fashion world, predominantly female, uh, and large, a significant percentage of working women were working in some aspect of the fashion industries, fashion and textile industries. Um, Paquin was interesting because she brought herself way up to be equivalently famous with Worth and for the 1900 exhibition was elected president of the Chambre Syndicale de la Haute Couture Parisienne and had uh, a mannequin based on her uh, at her dressing table in the international exhibition. And people claimed that the statue of La Parisienne on the top of the gate of the 1900 exhibition was supposed to be dressed in, you know, a stone facsimile of a paquin gown. Of course, we had to have uh, lingerie and corsets in the show because that was something that people are always, always interested in seeing. And this was an area where fashion became conspicuously more erotic in the last three decades of the 19th century. You'd always had um, some erotic lingerie. But by this period, you start to have, for example, the introduction of color into lingerie, which um, people writing at the time complained this was a symptom of modern neurasthenia. You know, had all this colorful lingerie. People were getting overexcited and oversexualized. Um, back when, I think I can go ahead once. Oh, sorry, this is our mass-produced one. Try one more. Ah, uh, I'm not doing well. Let me go back. Um, if you further on, I have uh, Manet's Nana. And when that was first shown, uh, Wiesmann in an art criticism said, you can always tell the aristocracy of vice by their lingerie. And uh, that blue satin corset was uh, totally uh, eroticized and unacceptable. But that was in the late 1870s. By the mid-1880s, it was perfectly acceptable for fashionable women to be wearing uh, colorful silk and satin corsets and petticoats. It was no longer a case of la vie parisienne saying that, you know, the woman who was comme il faut wore a white satin corset, or, you know, a black or a gray satin corset. Instead, it was increasingly things which were colorful, which were decorative. So from the white, plain underwear, you were going towards color and decoration, but you were also going towards various kinds of specific sports underwear. Uh, so for example, bicycling corsets, horseback riding corsets, Things which gave you greater freedom of movement, corsets for rowing, et cetera. Uh, unboned corsets that had uh, just extra stitching on them to support you rather than uh, actual whalebone. Or steel, because uh, whalebone the whales were already being driven to extinction. And working class women wore corsets that had metal bones, not whalebone. Here we have the mass-produced uh, petticoat. The corset, however, is. Um, it's it's not a custom-made corset, it's a mass-produced corset, but it's still a luxury one. This is one of the problems with fashion collections, that you have overwhelmingly middle and upper-class clothing. We're doing a show that opens with my young curators this summer on fashion and politics, and we do have working-class American 19th century clothes, but we didn't for French clothes, and nothing that worked right for this particular show. Here you see again the sort of uh, amazing floral imagery. Now, the image of woman as a modern Eve, as kind of a destructive femme fatale, is a really, it's an old idea. It goes back to the Bible and to Pandora's box. But in the late 19th and early 20th century, it seems to have become particularly prevalent because of Widespread cultural fears about the new woman and the threat that she posed to society in general, that as she became stronger, men would become weaker and more effeminate. And certainly a lot of the discourse on it assimilates women to nature and you know the processes of birth and growth and decay and death. Um, so there is that theme. And yet, on the other hand, Fashion is outside the organic cycle of birth and death and decay. It's an artificial realm. And in the fashionable woman was also, as far as many people were concerned, stepping outside women's appropriate biological role as wife and mother to insist on herself as an individual and as someone in pursuit of her own pleasures. And even one could say, like the dandy, you know, an artificial being outside of the realm of nature. Here we have more lingerie and peignoirs, got um, beautiful lingerie. It's not only Uzan who was into that, although he, as he memorably put it, a great coquette is like a flower who only emits her discreet perfume and the mystery of her intimacies. And in another book he talks about this new eve enveloped in a frou-frou of silk and lace. And he, he's wonderful, he goes on and on about exquisite petticoats and divine chemises. But he wasn't the only one. Uh, Another woman writer, um, the Comtesse de Tremor, in her Breviary of Woman, 1903, writes that it is the veiled, the secret part, the desired indiscretion conjured up. The man in love expects silky thrills, caresses of satin, charming rustles. The husband has a right to see pretty things. And if he's confronted with a mass of rigid lingerie, he's going to be disappointed. Moreover, this wasn't only in France. You had English beauty and fashion writers saying the same thing. Wonderful English writer who says that the Christian... Fashion has in common with the Christian religion the idea that the invisible is more important than the visible. And she actually calls her book The Cult of Chiffon. And she goes on and on, even more than Uzan about those desired thrills of undergarments. Uh, Here you see a beautiful Berthe Morisot of the chemise. Here, Nana, of course, with the blue satin corset and the blue um, stockings. The corset wouldn't be seen, uh, but the line of it would certainly be seen. And there were a lot of evening dresses, even then, which modeled the shape of the bodice exactly on the sort of the shape of the corset. from la vie parisienne, a wonderful uh, double spread centerfold on different kinds of corsets and the women who wore them. So the corset becomes kind of a metaphor for the woman, you know, like the black satin corset is for the little laundress who's thinking of going bad and you know the, the perfume suede corset is for the woman who's about to engage in a violent exercise and the perfume's going to become stronger as the suede becomes more heated up. But interestingly In this centerfold uh, from about 1882, uh, the central figure is the woman who doesn't wear a corset at all. And there's one on the side. There's the dress reformer. She doesn't wear a corset, but she's a figure of you know great horror and dismay. But the central figure doesn't wear a corset because she doesn't need to. And they say this is very rare. But you know, if you have this naturally beautiful figure, you don't need to wear a corset. And in fact. By the turn of the century, uh, when I would read fashion magazines with interviews, particularly with actresses, and they would talk about, who's your favorite couturier worth to say? Who's your favorite jeweler? Who's your favorite hat maker? A lot of them, they say, who's your favorite corsetier? Well, these women will say, I don't need to wear a corset. And you look at the picture and you go, babe, you are wearing a corset. But. <laughs> The point is, it was already supposed to be better. The corset was already imaginatively being seen as something that only someone who was old and fat would need to wear. That if you had the ideal body, um, you didn't need to wear it. And so again, um, the idea that, in a way, my corsets were never really given up. They were more internalized. Uh, towards diet, exercise, and ultimately plastic surgery. So instead of just pushing the fat around, you had to deal with the fat. So for example, when I did my corset show, and I had custom-made a 1880-style corset in black leather. And I was being fitted for it, and I said to my corseteer, there's fat coming up on my shoulder. And he's like, "Well, well, Val, it has to go somewhere. And I'm like, well, make it go somewhere else. And so he did and it was great, you know, it's like I hadn't a breast like that since I was breastfeeding. It was like vroom. And at the opening people kept saying, isn't that journalists would say, Isn't your corset uncomfortable? And I go, No, the corset's fine. My high heels are killing me, but the corset is absolutely fine. I'm like relaxed into it. Uh, here we see another beautiful dress with again uh, the sort of the illusion uh, to flesh with this sort of pinkish satin down the front and this sort of artificially opened design. Uh, the woman working in a shop who's wearing the sort of it's a fashionable silhouette but it's austere because it's sort of a black, simple, uh, mass-produced and then customized to fit her dress. We have again the peacock by comparison. Of course, the riding habit was the most, uh, along with the tailored suit, was the most notorious masculinized garment based on a man's tailored suit, but of course worn over a corset. Under the skirt would be trousers, but that's only underneath, and with a top hat. Uh, Not insignificantly, uh, lady equestrians were known as Amazons, and there was a lot of sort of eroticism that focused on this particular style of dress. This one, incidentally, uh, was looked at, with, belongs to our collection, and Azadine Alaia, the great uh, French fashion designer, was very interested in ex- examining this dress and used it as inspiration for some of the suits that he designed in the late 1990s. Here we have an Amazon riding side saddle. But black, as we've seen, also was not just associated with menswear and certain specialized garments. It was also associated with poor people like the governess, um, writers. I love it. One author said writers wear black because it's cheap and it doesn't show dirt and you know, you can wear the same thing all the time. Um, it was, of course, worn for mourning. Here's Beth Morisot in mourning. But it was also uh, worn for elegant fashionable dress. And I want to read you one quote um, from Le Mode. if I can find it here, about the black dress. What she says is that, um, she says that the black dress can be really practical. And, uh, generally speaking, a colorful evening dress is more prestigious, more formal. But, and this is again a late 19th century fashion writer in France, says ultimately the black dress is the most flattering, the most fashionable and seductive of dresses. So just sort of on the side, the idea that black in the 19th century was only for mourning dress and for businessmen, and that it was Coco Chanel who invented the little black dress and elegant black is completely false. Black for centuries has been both the black of mourning and the black of elegance, uh, and very much so The black tie of today goes right back to 16th century Spanish court black. Here's a fantastically beautiful uh, dress from the exhibition, which we borrowed. She's got a very small waist, much smaller than most of the dresses in the exhibition. Again Octave. Another beautiful dress from the Brooklyn Museum, an evening cape from the Brooklyn Museum, again with the floral decoration this fantastic sort of decadent looking uh, dress we lost out at auction uh, to a private collector in Chile who has the uh, Museum of Fashion that he's established there this wonderful dress which is cut velvet with black apples all over it which seemed to me the sort of perfect image of sort of decadent uh, eroticism so we borrowed it from Chile for the exhibition then we sent it back to him A year or two later, he sold it at auction in London, and we bought it for half the price that uh, he'd bought it for in New York. Um, But this dress, as I was uh, working on this, I kept looking at various sort of decadent novels and images of dandies and decadent females in in black, you know, one description of a woman looking like, you know, a panther in black, and this sort of, uh, the seductiveness of the color and of the style were very much a part of fashion discourse in the late 19th century. Here you see some of those 18th century inspired styles. that I mentioned the stripes which um, became fashionable in the late 18th century when they got the first zebra at the Paris Zoo. And then the other one <laughs> there, well hitherto it had been known as the devil's cloth. I mean stripes were for convicts and crazy people. It was not, for, not a fashion thing at all until then. Um, And then the other uh, jacket is made from an 18th century man's coat, and it's been recut for uh, a Belle Époque woman. Again, more of the decorative and floral embroidery, and then the extreme luxury of decoration. And again, the idea of the woman—I'm going to end soon—the idea of the woman being this object deluxe and the Japanese-inspired coat. These are these interviews with actresses. She is wearing a corset. Um, And here you see already by the late 19th century the ideal of beauty is evolving. This is 1912, but already it's evolving towards away from what was called the Venus ideal and more towards the Diana ideal, the ideal of someone who was younger, naturally slimmer, more sportive. And increasingly the thought was that you weren't supposed to have to wear corsets. You were supposed to have this body already. And of course then when Poiret, who designed this, announced that I abolished the corset and introduced the brasier, a claim which Chanel and VA and many others echoed uh, it was quite untrue. Uh, the style of undergarments changed and the body type changed, but changing gradually from within the world of fashion and not as a response to uh, dress reform requests to bring in something that was more practical. Similarly, he brings in harem pants like this It's coming from the world of ultra-high fashion and not from the world of dress reform. So just to conclude the end of uh, last shot of the exhibition, we see then how the lush ultra-femininity of fantasiecle fashion evolves into something already towards the later part of the 19th and early 20th century, before the First World War, evolving into a newer, more modern image of femininity. If we look at a dress from 1900 or 1890 and one from 1925, it's reasonable to assume that the war caused the difference. But in fact, if you look at something from 1890, 1900, 1905, 1912, you see the changes are happening there within the world of fashion. Thank you very much.
0: I'd like to ask our speakers from the morning to come up to the table and just remind um, audience members that this is a good moment to ask questions that are a little more specific, points of information. Uh, We have time this afternoon for a more broad-ranging discussion with the roundtable, but we do have time now for questions for the speakers. Yes, please, Uh, Sophie.
2: That's an excellent question, um, not only in terms of class, but also in terms of race. So, um, but, one can't simply talk in terms of binaries. That's what's so interesting. One has to look at the debates around the implications of class and race for s- notions of susceptibility. and they're not, They don't line up easily. They don't line up easily. So, for example, Uh, The uh, British case that you uh, raised um, is a very interesting one because the assumption was that officers, um, being middle class, upper class, um, have a different susceptibility. The uh, Austrian case is actually very different and it's um, one that makes it very important to understand the national specificity Um, of what is really, by the 19th century, notions of universal medicine, right? All medicine is universal, all medicine is local. So in Austria, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, um, the treatment of um, choice um, for shell shock is in point of fact Um, you uh, offer the soldiers a choice between going back to the front and being shot. It's the Italian model. No, it is very much the Italian model. The Italian model um, in the First and Second World War, uh, the Italians almost killed more of their own soldiers um, than the, well, we're not going there. Um, Zimmel was in... Um, On the far eastern front, on the Russian front, he was a very minor figure, I mean a very minor figure. Freud did not even know Zimmel. He was not psychoanalytically trained, he was self-taught, right? He developed the methodology in the east. It seemed to work and seemed to be very efficacious. Um, Yarek's approach was more generally accepted in um, the mainstream army medicine, right? Though it too was the exception rather than the rule, right? Um, Medical treatment for PTSD which is what we would call this today, was the exception rather than the rule. The difference is that Zimmel's approach had a higher rate of return to the front. Freud heard about this and said Oh my gosh, this is useful. Um, by the end of the war, by 1919-1920, that approach was seen to be more humane. Think about that. It was more effective getting people back to the front to get killed, and therefore was more effective and more humane. Yarok was seen as torturing, as torturing something that doesn't happen in the UK. doesn't happen in the UK. So the answer is very different, yet very similar, Um, lining up in in the Austro-Hungarian situation very much along the question of where you're located um, in terms of geography rather than where you're located in terms of class. However, who's on the Eastern Front? Right? It's the Hungarians. Right? It's the Tyrolanese. It's the people from the Bukovina, from the army's uh, units from the Bukovina. The Austrians wind up on the Western Front. Again, we don't talk about that, but the Austrian army is set up very much along regional and provincial differences. And we can talk then about notions of susceptibility then.
0: Thank you. Other questions? And I'm going to take the mic down so that your question is captured on the recording. Hello, uh, I'm Jennifer Boetza in French and History. I actually have a question for Valerie Steele about the changing colors of the corset. And in particular, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about, since it's hidden, as you mentioned, where is the scandal? Is it rumor? Is the scandal you know, propagated by the corsetier? Is the woman actually mentioning the color of the corset? How does this actually come out, since it's technically an undergarment? I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about that.
1: Well, undergarments are displayed also. I mean, you had corset displays in windows, and department stores, at international exhibitions. There are many, many caricatures of, you know, people walking past a corset display going, that one's like my first girlfriend, ooh, that one's like my wife. Um, you know, so they were facsimiles for women's bodies, which were seen in public a lot. Um, so, uh, people saw them, they saw the petticoats in different colors and in silk and decoration, even things like nightgowns and chemises had a lot more decoration, had colorful satin ribbons woven through them. So although you didn't see these worn on the woman, except in private moments, uh, you certainly saw them for sale, you saw them advertised, etc. cetera. Um, and I don't know, maybe Sandra could tell us more about why color was seen as being so sort of hysterical, but there was certainly... There were complaints in magazines and newspapers that this was a symptom of increasing neurasthenia. Um, that people needed this, well, possibly probably because they needed the stimulus of the excitement of color. Because, for example, in, uh, in already by the 1880s, in La Vie Parisienne, there's uh, another little discussion about uh, corsets. and the author warns women that if their lovers need to see them in a black corset or black stockings, it may be because they can't get it up otherwise. Um, And so this is a kind of additional stimulus. Uh, Red petticoats had been used earlier because it's thought to be warmer and healthier, but red was also recognized as a color of passion. But you get a whole array of colors. You get beautiful blue satin and you get amazing embroidered things. There's black satin corset with all kinds of embroidery and like mauve and pink all over it. Um, So on the one hand Corsets and lingerie in general becomes more decorative, but then at the same time, this is beginning in the 1880s, you have a split also towards sports corsets and sports underwear. Instead of having one generic plain white, your or gray or black it's being practical, um, corset. And lingerie, you have specialized kinds for the different roles you're playing, and the erotic role was one that, increasingly in the late 19th century, the wife was supposed to be playing too. That it was supposed to be more of, the idea of a companionate marriage, and you should have somehow romance within the marriage as well as outside of it.
2: Let me add just a bit to this. I mean, you're absolutely right. The neurasthenia. One of the things that happens is that you need ever greater speed ever greater color, right? Um, But you said something actually in your talk which I wanted to pick up on because it was absolutely striking to me. Um, When you were talking about the courtesan and the dress and that um, this was public display that implied greater sexual variation and favors. What is so fascinating in this point, both in Paris and in Vienna and Berlin and in London, is that the other end of the class spectrum also makes that claim. That is, it is the working class, right? It's the six-year-old girls in the working class who want sex, and they'll do everything, right? And it's very interesting that these observers who are basically bourgeois observers see both ends of the spectrum as hypersexual. Um, The answer, of course, the bottom line about reality is that sexual variation is infinite, is universally practiced, and it isn't bound to any class right? Um, But it's where you imagine it to be, right? So on the one hand, you look at the courtesan with her extraordinary, and by the way, extraordinary gown. But you also look at the, at the schnitzler's little girl from the country wearing the simple dress. And you know, both of them are going to do things that mama never told you that they could do.
1: Well, and, and the private lives of different individuals is interesting as well. I mean, um, Uzan, well, famously, Jean Lorraine accused Marcel Proust of being a, a homosexual in print, and Proust challenged him to a duel. Well, Proust had um, Barreau as his second. But Lorraine had Octave, had Uzan as his second. And now Lorraine, of course, was himself homosexual, heavily made up into sailors and rough trade and getting beaten up and ether. And um, apparently the duel was delayed for an hour until Octave staggered up. He apparently had a little too much morphine that morning. So he was late to the dueling ground.
0: I'll just tell another story that Manet uh, w- also ended up in a duel with a critic who had given him a bad review, and Manet spent the whole day before the duel shopping for the right pair of shoes. <laughs> they had to be roomy enough. look, this <laughs> is a model for getting rid of tenure. Yeah. Right? Questions, yes? we could go in so many directions, but this time I'm going to uh, talk, ask Dr. Merriman uh, and also Dr. Gilman to discuss uh, some of the aspects of criminal psychology that were um, on the rise at that time. I think of Robert Musil's bo- uh, description of a notable uh, criminal in A Man Without Qualities. And then also there are descriptions of women and uh, of women of a certain sort in museal short stories and so on. So um, we go somewhere with that.
3: Don't have much to say about that except it's the influence of, what's his name, Lombroso and their, uh, you know, they, the minute that they arrest um, Emile and all sorts of other people, they start measuring their ears and, and, and uh, you know, they measure their thumbs and everything, and, and and they they I mean it's a wonderful source of, of of information, and the the popular press makes these sorts of conclusions based upon a you know, a, 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 a they they discuss it, but the police didn't take it very seriously. But um, you know Robert Nye, I guess knows all about isn't it Robert Nye, who did, Nye? Yeah, Bob Nye, who just uh, used to teach at at uh, O U, and and is not now retired, but would be the person to uh, consult on that. Uh, uh, Sandra, do you want to Yeah, uh, one of the things that happens um,
2: from 1880 to 1914 um, is the rise of criminology as a specialty. And there are three um, strands, the one you've just mentioned, the strand of degeneration theory, um, which by the way, actually has real implications, the measuring of the ear and of um, the taking of fingerprints, um, the photographing, which has triple purposes, Um, it is both to record the image for record-keeping, it is to record the image for the analysis in terms of signs of degeneration, and it is in terms of teaching um, what criminals look like, so you can, in a sense, see them before they do things, right? So, but that's, in a sense, it plays itself out in very specific ways. But there are two other schools of criminology that arise at the same time, in Paris, in Vienna, and Berlin. One we can talk about is a school of the sociology, right? Um, Durkheim is part and parcel of this, and if you read the um, Review of Sociology, there are lots of articles about criminology. And indeed, the book on suicide is full of discussions of the criminal um, produced by social forces. And then the third, which is for me the most interesting, arises in Berlin before the First World War with Karl Abraham, the greatest psychoanalyst next to Freud, and Freud acknowledges this. Um, Abraham develops a psychoanalytic theory of criminology. That's what Muzila is responding to, by the way. That's what Muzila is responding to. And these are competing schools. So again, it's very easy to talk about racial measurement, right? With Lombroso, um, it is very easy to talk about criminolo- criminological measurement. It's the one that is the most visible but you've got to understand that they're competing for understanding the criminal as degenerate. And remember our Zola. Degenerates give birth to degenerates of different form. Alcoholic parents have prostitute daughters. That's what Nana's all about. Um, A sociological one, which is precisely what John was talking about, the notion of Um, the inner city versus the outer city. In London, uh, exactly the opposite, Seven Dials versus Ebenezer Howard's New Garden City, right, 1890s. Um, And then the psychoanalytic, which understands the criminal um, as both libidinous, that is, as having the 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 incomplete repression of libidinal drives but Abraham, who always has a social context with Freud, never has, always talks about this as playing out within society.
3: Let me just, let me just add one thing about the anarchists. There's, uh, I came across this um, uh, this kind of remarkable uh, effort in about, oh, maybe 1904 by this, uh, this policeman in Paris to kind of, he took all of the kind of big time Guys, and uh, by incidentally, they were all guys. I said of Louise Michel, who was not not a terrorist, but they, they were talking, really about men. Though there were women so on, the, on the on the edge of the movement, and he, and, and he. You know, I don't know what he'd read, but he kind of takes them all, and it says, you know, "What about their fathers? What was the relationship with with their their fathers? I mean, how did they grow up? What kinds of social circumstances did they have? How was the relationship with with their mother?" And it was a way of trying to predict. You know, it was far more savvy than simply measuring years, but it, it, it really was kind of cool, and and it, it reflected uh, the the kind of popularity of it, precise stuff that Sanders Sanders talking about.
2: By the way, now, when said always a gender difference?" Right? I was talking about this as. Lombroso, for example, talks about men are violent criminals, women will poison you. Right? I'm always careful what I eat at Condor or burn you.
0: (laughs) Okay, we have time for one more question before we break for lunch. Sophie? Sophie sharp Driver History Department. Question for uh, Valerie Steele. Uh, what do we know about uh, changes in modiste um, organization of work in the fin de siècle? So is in, in the organization of work at Fashion Atelier, um, is there more outsourcing of parts of the work? I mean, the, in, the, in the same way that you see um, changes in the making of gloves, which was just one. Yes holistic profession and then it completely gets fragmented where parts of the work are outsourced to to villages and how how would that relate to uh, the changes in fashion?
1: Um, Much of it is outsourced. I think that there's no clear and direct connection between the process of production and the shape, the silhouette and style of the clothes. Um, You certainly have um, a workforce is primarily female, uh, often working, you know, in isolation and sort of small, either at home or in small ateliers connected with couture houses or connected with department stores. Um, But what's actually produced, uh, it tends to be produced things which are designed by couturiers, drawn by artists for the fashion magazines, and there seems to be a lot of back and forth and without the artist will go and look at things that the couturiers are doing and then modify things slightly there. Um, And those styles are presented to the market, and then they're either picked up or rejected. I mean, as Dior said, the couturier proposes, but the ladies dispose. Certain styles are just not picked up and others are, and there's a very slow sort of cumulative change almost like a kind of inflationary movement, things will go in one direction, like the, get more and more and more petticoats under your skirt, and then somebody clever invents a cage crinoline and that replaces eight petticoats. And so that gets as big as it can, and when it's as big as it can, it starts to shrink. As big as it can, uh, confined by whatever restrictions there are uh, about what will be acceptable. Um, so. The dresses will get tighter in front, then, and the crinoline will be pushed in the back, and so you'll get more and more and more of a bustle. Then that will shrink, and the bustle will swell up again. These changes are very small, and then some of them are adopted, and others are not, and may be adopted later on when the fashion changes. It's a very kind of mysterious process, and I think we tend to think that fashion is the result of a kind of conspiracy, you know. that. Um, Designers and manufacturers are plotting to get suckers to choose something new and go for it. Uh, But if you think in terms, there are fashions in everything. There are fashions in names, for example. You know, I named my child Steven. I thought this was an interesting name. It was my husband's middle name. Well, it turned out, of course, that there are like a zillion Stevens in the class. And you kind of think, what, what is it that at a certain time, certain names will come into fashion or not? It's almost like there are cycles within different areas within music for example designers look mostly at what other designers are doing just like musicians listen mostly to what other musicians are doing and their changes come out of that and are then either picked up by little groups and spread or not and because it remain a kind of niche marginal fashion <laughs>